Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. It's been a wonderful day in the Lord's house so far. The music's been good. The worship has been good. But now let us turn our attention to the Word. James chapter 5. You'll notice we're in the last chapter. We're going to be reading the last verses in our study in James as we, Lord willing, wrap it up this morning with some final thoughts from James. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful book of James. Thank you, Father, that as we draw to a close here, we can look back and say that we've learned some things. Lord, I confess I found this a difficult book to prepare messages on. It's been difficult for me to preach through. And yet, Lord, I've I've profited from the study, and I thank you, and I pray that all have. But as we draw to a close today, Lord, we come to some passages here that are (coughs) difficult, and we need your help. And so I pray you'd speak to us today. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to preach well today. Uh, not for my glory or anybody else's but my Savior's. We've sung about him today. We've worshipped him. We've talked about him. We've remembered his sacrifice around the communion table. And now, Lord, I pray as we learn more about him from the word that you'll help us, Father, to honor and glorify him and uh, become more like him through our study of, of your word. Help, I pray, and teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have learned a lot from James, have we not? Today, I want to begin our study in these last few verses by shooting the elephant in the room. And I would imagine that if I were to go around the room this morning and ask, what one verse jumps out at you as you go down through there? Which one causes you to scratch your head and say, I wonder what that really means? Did James really mean what he said right there? If there was one verse right there, I'm guessing that most of you would probably settle on the same one. I'm going to take a chance here. I've done this before and asked this question and everybody made me look stupid. But let's try it anyway. Who will tell me what one verse jumps out at you that you'd like to know? Did James really mean what he said right there? 5.14. What? 5.14. 14? 14. Is that what you would say too, Ray? Anybody else think 14 is a little bit... Odd, unusual, difficult? Well, amen. Thankfully, you didn't make me look too stupid on that one because I would say that if there is a particular verse that most people find controversial here in James, this would be the one. It's hard for us to get our mind around it. So I'd like to tackle that part of, the, of this passage first. Uh, that's the elephant in the room. That's the one thing that if we don't talk about what does verse 14 mean, then the rest of the topic is going to be 
difficult for us to understand here today. And actually, we'll look at verses 14 to 15 together. And I have to admit right up front that we'll probably end up with a rather unsatisfying answer when we're done. But nonetheless, I hope it'll be helpful. And uh, hopefully it will. It's just one of those verses that defies dogmatic approach. There are several different things that it could mean. And uh, so I'll share some of those thoughts with you, some of the things that I've found in my studies. And you being intelligent people and having the access to the Holy Spirit yourself, uh, you can kind of think that through and decide what you think comes closest to the mark. But then after we've done that, after we've shot the elephant, then I want us to look at some things in this passage which are very clear. Because James does give us some wonderful instruction here that's very, very simple and plain for us to understand. And so let's, uh, let's take that approach this morning. Look at verse number 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What was James saying in those verses? On the one hand, it certainly seems straightforward, doesn't it? Are you sick? Call for the elders. They will come. They will pray. They will anoint you with oil, and you will be healed and forgiven. That's what it seems to be saying. That's what it is saying. I mean, that's the the words. That's what James said. What did he mean? As a pastor, and the word elder here just simply means pastor. As a pastor, I can say I don't recall ever having anybody ask me to do this. Come and pray, yes. To come and anoint with oil, I do not recall that ever happening. Maybe it has and I've forgotten, but I don't think so. I do remember when I served as an associate pastor at another church. You, you all met John Cornett at our missions conference when I served with him in New Jersey. I remember asking him one time whether he would anoint someone with oil if they so asked him. And his response was immediate. He said yes. Not only would he do so, but that he actually carried a little vial of oil around with him all the time in case someone would ask him. And I said, has anybody ever asked you? And he said, no, I don't think they ever have. But then, oddly enough, not too, too long after that, I recall being at a particular hospital visit with him when somebody did ask him. And I watched as he took that little vial out of his pocket, probably for the very first time ever, and dipped his finger in that oil and touched it on this person's forehead and held his hand there and prayed. You think he had it right? You think that's what James is talking about right here? And what do you think the purpose of the oil is? Was the oil important? Does it matter what kind of oil? He used olive oil. What if you used, I don't know, canola oil? Would something like that be okay? Does it matter? Is there some power in the oil? Does it have some ability in and of itself to heal? We think of these questions when we read this passage, don't we? What did James mean here? This is, this is strange stuff. And I suppose perhaps somebody who is in my role, perhaps, would think about this a little bit more, because I have to think through how how I implement this. Well, in my studies, I came across several different interpretations of this passage, and as I said, as we go down through these, you're going to probably think they're not very satisfying, but uh, there are a lot of different ways that people have interpreted this. So let me just share some, and these are not all of them by any means, but some of the more common interpretations of the passage. Those who preach the heretical and erroneous health and wealth gospel. They would go to this passage and say that it teaches that it is never God's will that you be sick. And and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to say, we can see how they're getting that out of there. He says, if you pray, you're going to be healed. 
And so we can see how they would get that. It is never God's will that you be sick. They would say full physical health is only a prayer away. And you don't have to go very far down the road from this church until you'll find folks who are preaching that gospel, conducting healing services and believing in that kind of faith healing. It reminds me of the story of Big Ed. I told Ed I was going to tell the story of Big Ed this morning. And uh, I don't think it's the same Big Ed. But maybe it is. I don't know. I read where Big Ed went to a revival meeting and listened to the preacher. And after a while, the preacher asked if there was anyone there who needed to come forward and, and, and be prayed over. And Big Ed jumped up and he got in line. And when it was his turn, the preacher said, Big Ed, what do you want me to pray about? And Big Ed said, Preacher, I need you to pray for my hearing. And so the preacher put one finger in Big Ed's ear and another one on his head, and he began to pray. He prayed loud, he hooted and hollered and swayed back and forth and all those things. And after a few minutes, he removed his hand and he said, Big Ed, how is your hearing now? And Big Ed said, well, I don't know, preacher. It's not until next Wednesday at the courthouse. (laughs) Was that you, Big Ed? I don't think so. Our friends in the Catholic Church derive one of their seven sacraments, I think, from this passage. That would be the sacrament of extreme unction. From what I can understand, and I'm not an expert on this, but from what I can understand, it came on the scene in the 15th century. Extreme unction refers to, quote, a sacrament in which a priest anoints and prays for the recovery and salvation of a critically ill or injured person. Another definition that I came across gave a little bit more detail. It said, uh, extreme unction is defined to be a sacrament wherein by the anointing with oil and prayer in the prescribed form by the ministration of a priest, grace is conferred, conferred to the baptized dangerously ill whereby sins are remitted and the strength of the soul is increased. Similar to the idea of faith healing requires the intermediary office of a priest there. And the problem with both of those interpretations is that we know they cannot be right. We know that, right? We understand from from two different reasons. From biblical truth, we know that neither of those things can be right. And I'll share that with you in a moment. But we also know from our personal experience that they're not right. They can't be. That can't be what James is talking about. The Bible is clear that it is not always God's will to physically heal us. He doesn't always raise the sick from their sickbed. The Apostle Paul suffered some kind of physical ailment. He called it a thorn in the flesh. We do not know what it was. Some people think it was his eyesight. But the Apostle Paul had been beaten and shipwrecked and starved to death and and, and, in every way stoned and left for dead. His body was no doubt so bashed beyond recognition it could have been anything. But whatever it was, he referred to it as a thorn in the flesh. He talked about it and he said this. He said, lest I should be exalted above measure. By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Second Corinthians chapter 12. A lot of things we could talk about in there, but for the purpose of what we're trying to say today, notice this. Notice that Paul was sick. That's pretty clear. He was sick. And he prayed for healing. And he did not receive it. It was not only that God didn't want to heal heal Paul. It, It wasn't only that it was not God's will to heal. 
It also seems there, the implication of the passage is, God's the one who sent the sickness in the first place. And for a purpose, a reason that ultimately benefited Paul. See, the Bible's clear. The Bible teaches over and over again. It's not always God's will to heal. The same truth can be seen in the story of Job. Job was smitten with tremendous physical illness and distress. Job, in 42 chapters of the book, cries out to God for deliverance from this. And he did not receive it until God's purposes were accomplished uh, in sending it. It's not always God's will to heal. Paul had the gift of healing. He exercised that gift often during his ministry on this earth, but he did not heal everybody. He could not heal everybody, because it's not always God's will to heal. Epaphroditus was one of the influential leaders in the early church. Paul one time mentioned his sickness in his letter to the Philippians. He said, since Epaphroditus was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he, that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, Philippians chapter 2. Why would Paul sorrow over this man's sickness? Paul had the gift of healing. Why didn't he just heal Epaphroditus? Because he couldn't. Because it's not always God's will to heal. When writing to Timothy, Paul said, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. What kind of a faith healer would leave poor Trophimus in Miletus sick when he had it within his ability to heal him of his illness? The kind that understood and accepted that it's not always God's will to heal. At least not on this earth. Now, the Bible is absolutely clear on this point. It's not always God's will to heal. We know that. We know that. Physical sickness and disease sometimes is in the will of God. And pastors and elders could all add their personal experience to this discussion. You could add your personal experience to this discussion. We pray all the time for people to be healed of their physical sickness. And how many times have we watched as they continue to waste away? And the Lord goes ahead and takes them home. So many examples. My aunt right now is going through the latter stages of her life. And we watch and we pray. But it does not seem to be the Lord's will to heal. We've watched so many. We've watched Beth's family, her mom, her dad. We prayed beside them. Bob Smith, right now our brother, is at home in the last stages of his life. Uh, all of these and so many others. You could think of many others. We prayed for them. And yet God did not choose to heal them. And it's not always those who are in the latter parts of, of their life. Maybe it's just somebody with a sickness. Uh, our sister Mary back there has always got a, a terrible problem with, with back pain. She struggles with it all the time. I would have to believe that if I were to sit Mary down and ask you, if you ever ask God to deliver you from that back pain, I'll bet you she'd say yes. And I'll bet you she'd say yes. She's done it many times. And God has chosen not to heal. My son Joshua went through a terrible bout of cancer and chemotherapy. It cost him his ears, his hearing. And he sits back there now with a headset on his head. And I'll bet you if you were to ask him today, do you ever pray and ask God if he could remove that deafness from you, he would probably say yes. But God has not chosen to heal. We've all heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed from the neck down as a young woman. I've heard her testimony. You've heard her testimony about at least in the initial days of her injury, how she cried out to God and prayed, God, would you please heal me of this paralysis? And yet still, years and years later, Johnny Erickson Tata is in a wheelchair to this day. I don't really need to go on, do I? 
It's clear, is it not, from the Bible and from personal experience that God does not always heal us of physical sickness and pain in this life. And so that can't be what James is talking about. It simply cannot be. But before I leave that idea, let me, let me just give you one little piece of good news because there is something that kind of takes the other side of the story. God doesn't always heal in this life, but God does always heal. That's important that we remember that. And James does say that here, doesn't he? The Christian. And remember, that's who James is writing to here. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to us believers, children of God. And he says here that they can rest in the promise that the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If that's not in this life, there is an ultimate healing that is yet to come. So faith healing, extreme unction. Those are a couple of different ways people interpret this passage and they just simply can't be it. But, but, but that's not the only ways. There's other ways people have interpreted this passage. Some look at this and they say that it's talking about the fact prayer and medicine should go hand in hand. Prayer and medicine should go hand in hand. And they're getting that from the idea that the oil that is mentioned there, anointing with oil, is a medicinal thing. And that's possible. Oil was used for medicinal purposes in Bible times. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. It's possible that that's what James is talking about. And so if James was using oil there as a medicinal agent, he would basically be saying this. If you are sick, we ought to pray and seek medical attention. And most of us would say amen to that. Pray and seek medical attention. Last September... We were privileged to hear from D.L. Moody. You remember when D.L. Moody preached here? D.L. Moody on Old Fashioned Sunday. He must have believed in this, uh, this, this interpretation. He must have thought the oil referred to medicine because he said one time, one time uh, Do you ask what I would do if I were ill? I would get the best doctor in town, trust in him, and trust in the Lord to work through him. And my guess is that probably most people in this room would agree with that. My guess is that most evangelical Christians would gravitate toward that particular interpretation. Unless you're of the Pentecostal or charismatic persuasion, you would almost certainly go to that. But the oil is talking about medicine, and what James is saying here is pray and seek medical attention. And yet there's others who see it another way. There are some who see prayer and medicine working hand in hand here, but there are some who see something different in the oil. They see the oil as being illustrative of the Holy Spirit, of God's intervention. And so they would say this verse is talking about the human and divine roles in healing. And if that interpretation is correct, James would have been saying, when we are sick, we should pray and trust God. And we'd all say amen to that, wouldn't we? We should pray and we should trust God. There are some folks in our, in our world today who don't believe in medical attention at all. There are some folks who take this to such an extreme that if their child was sick, if, if they were sick, they would not seek the help of, of uh, the medical community. Every once in a while we read about something like that in the news where someone has refused treatment for a child or a relative and uh, there's a big brouhaha because of it. But this is where they're basing it. This is where they're getting it from. They're saying the Bible says we should pray and trust God. There's another interpretation. Some people think this is referring to the exercise of the gift of healing by the elders. It says, call, call for the elders of the church, ask them to pray, and anoint you with oil, and uh, you'll be healed. And they think that what that is talking about then is the gift of healing that the elders 
exercise. And we know that there was a gift of healing in the early church. We know that. It's one of the signs of the apostles described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Mark chapter 16, and other places. But we also believe that gift ceased when the New Testament was completed. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Since the purpose of the sign gifts was just to authenticate the ministry of the apostles, they weren't, it wasn't needed anymore once the New Testament came into being. And so that gift ceased. And therefore, if that's what he was talking about, we have a little problem here because if the gift ceased, then so did this verse cease for us. This verse would have no meaning to us today if that was the actual interpretation of it. The Bible also says that handkerchiefs came forth from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul handkerchiefs would be taken from him and given to people and they had healing power. But when the gift of healing ceased, that mechanism ceased as well. And so I don't think that's the case here. If it was the case, then we just have to toss the verse out and say, well, that was for then, just as some of the other miraculous gifts were for them. So lots of different interpretations. And believe me, those are just a few. There's a whole bunch more. So let's read the passage again. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So who can tell me what it means? Who can tell me which one of those things is correct? I confess that I cannot. At least I cannot dogmatically tell you which of those things are correct. I, I, I think I can be pretty dogmatic about a couple things. I think I can state pretty categorically that it does not teach that God and prayer always heal physical disease. I think I can, I can toss out the faith healing piece. The health and wealth gospel is not true and it is not taught here. I think I can say pretty categorically that it does not teach the Catholic doctrine of extreme unction. And the main error there is the requirement of a priest as an intermediary. Not taught here, not taught anywhere. And although I cannot be as dogmatic about this one, I don't believe it refers to the gift of healing. Uh, for a couple of reasons that we've mentioned. Also because of the fact the gift of healing was a sign of an apostle. It had nothing to do with elders. There's no place where we see elders having that. And so that doesn't make sense either. Does it, pre does it teach that prayer and medicine should go hand in hand? Yeah, I think it does. At least I think that's partially the right answer. Does it describe both the human and divine element in healing? Uh, I think it might. I think both of those interpretations are at least partially correct. And I think that regardless of where we fall on the difficulty of interpreting that particular verse... We need to not allow ourselves to get confused about the clear teaching of that verse. That verse does teach us some things that are pretty obvious, right? It says here, if you are sick, you should call for the elders. They will come and they will pray and they will possibly anoint. I don't see why we cannot implement that clear teaching, even though we may not understand all of the issues behind it. It's a clear instruction. If you are sick, call for the elders. They will come. They will pray. They will possibly anoint some time ago, a lady was attending our services, and she attended very faithfully for a short period of time. She even started getting involved in some of the activities and things that were going on around here, and she seemed to be very happy. But then she disappeared because she went somewhere for the winter. She, she went south, I think, for the winter. Well, I never saw her again. And I began to inquire as to what had happened, and I found out that she was upset. She was hurt that I had not gone to pray with her when she was sick. But I didn't know she was sick. She wasn't even around. My mind-reading skills were at a low ebb, apparently, at that particular time. 
Do you notice here, sick ones, that you are the ones who are tasked with letting the elders know? The elders cannot help. If they do not know, you have to let them know that you are sick. They will come. They have a heart for ministry. They are shepherds at heart. They will be there when you call, but you have to call. Otherwise, they do not know. We can implement that, can't we? If you're sick, call. And notice also that the primary thing the elders are going to do is pray. There's this oil thing in there. I understand that. We'll keep thinking through that. But it's not the oil that results in the healing. The Bible is clear on that. It's the prayer of faith, verse number 15 says. That's what saves and heals the sick. So two key, indisputable truths to be drawn from this passage that we need to faithfully implement. When we are sick, we should seek the prayers of others. And when we are called by those who are sick, we should pray. I don't think we can get around those two. Very, very, very clear. Well, that's the elephant in the room. That's the hard verse. But you know, there's, there's several things in this passage that are not hard. And I, I want to just talk about them just for a minute. And I don't have a lot of time. I'll just mention them quickly and we'll move on. Because these three things, I think, all gravitate around that one and help us maybe to see it a little bit more. James tells us three things in these verses. He says, number one, sin is the problem. Number two, prayer is the prescription. And number three, the church is the pharmacy. Would you look at those three? And I'll I'll only take a minute. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Do you see that here? We can't read this passage. We can't help but see in these verses. Not only the reality of sin, but its role in human sickness. It's all through here. It's in verse 15. It's in verse 16. It's in verses 19 and 20. The sickness that he's describing herein is almost certainly a result of sin. And oh, we need to listen to this this morning. The fact is that we as Christians, you and I, brothers and sisters, we cannot sin with impunity. If you can sin and the Holy Spirit of God doesn't do anything to you about that, if you can sin and just continue to live like the devil and the Holy Spirit of God does not convict you of that, I can tell you on the authority of the Bible, you're not saved. The Bible says you're an illegitimate child if that is the case. Sin is not something that we can do with impunity. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid our sin debt so that we will never see the ultimate penalty for sin. We Christians will never see how he saved us from that. Our Easter cantata this year is all about Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. And it is. The debt's paid. God is satisfied. But if we as Christians continue to blatantly live in sin as a child of God, we can expect that he will deal with us. You know what he's going to do? He's going to give us a spanking. That's what he's going to do. He's going to chastise and discipline his children. And sometimes that discipline takes the form of physical sickness. And that's what James is talking about here. All kinds of examples. Matthew chapter 9, Behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. This man was sick. He was sick because of sin. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, we see Jesus healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. Some of us will stand there in just a few months and look down into that, the abyss of the pool of Bethesda. You remember that, Connie? And we'll look there. Somewhere, right there, Jesus healed this man who had been there a long time in this case. And after he healed him of his sickness that had been years, he saw him later on in the temple. And in John chapter 5 and verse number 14, Jesus said to him, 
See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And so this man had been there, lying by the pool of Bethesda for years, because he was sick. And he was sick because of sin. And so this passage teaches that when we are sick, we need to consider whether sin is the reason. And if it is, make it right. James says in verse number 16, confess your trespasses, your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's been said confession is good for the soul. But James here teaches that sometimes it's good for the body. Because sometimes our body is sick because of unconfessed sin. It's funny how we are as Christians, isn't it? We really think other people look at us and think we're not sinners. We don't want to ever let people think we might be harboring something within our heart. Thoughts. But the fact is we all are. The fact is we're all, we all have black hearts. The fact is we're all sinners. And for us to sit back and say, I have nothing to confess is silly. We need to be confessing our sins. <clears throat> James reminds us here that salvation doesn't keep us from sinning in this life. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 7. And sin will be something we deal with until it's finally taken away from us when we get to glory. You do remember, right, that there's three, three different tenses to our salvation. You remember that? When we, when we were saved, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, and when we trusted him as our Savior, we were saved at that moment and forever from the penalty for sin. Past tense. Took place on the cross. Took place when we trusted. But we still have sin in our lives. And throughout our life now, for the rest of our life, progressively, we are being saved from the power of sin. It's called sanctification. Present tense. And then there's coming that glorious day. Hallelujah. That day when we get to glory. And there will be no sin. And we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Forever and ever and ever. Future tense. But right now, it's still here. And right now, it's still part of our life. And James says right now, we need to confess our sins. We need to keep short accounts with God. Jesus, in his model prayer, taught the disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And such confession should be a regular part of our daily prayer life. Confess. Confess. So sin is the problem. He says, number two, prayer is the prescription. If there is a key thought... In, the book of, in, in this passage from James right here, these verses from James, it would be prayer. It's mentioned more than any other thing. Seven times he talks about prayer in these few verses. He says we're to pray when we are suffering. Suffering should elicit, elicit prayer. We're to sing praises when we are merry, and praise is a form of prayer. I don't know how anybody sang these songs this morning, which were wonderful songs of praise, without praying them to God. At the same time that you were singing them. We were to sing praises when we're merry. Sufficiency ought to elicit praise. Whether in the valley or on the mountaintop, we are to pray. We're to pray when we seek. We're to seek prayer when we are sick. And the shepherds are specifically to pray for those who are sick. Verse number 14. We're to pray when we have sinned against someone or when they have sinned against us. Verses 15 and 16. James says here, prayer is key to everything. He's wrapping up his letter. He's, he's talked about all these different things. He's had one primary theme throughout, which is that we need to have a faith that works. Faith without works is dead. And then he comes to the very end here, and he has all these pleas for prayer. Perhaps because the only way we can have a faith that works is to bathe our walk with God in prayer. Prayer. Prayer brings healing. Prayer brings restoration. Prayer brings forgiveness. He says all those things in verse 15. Prayer avails much. He says in verse 16. 
E.M. Bounds said what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And so even though I believe this passage teaches, at least partially, that both prayer and medicine work hand in hand, I think he's also giving us a warning here. We Christians too often minimize the prayer part. We often minimize it too much. We seek the doctor first. We ought to pray first. We trust the doctor most. We ought to trust prayer most. Christians should pray. They should pray when they're sick. They should pray for the sick. Prayer is key. It's key to everything. So James reminds us sin is the problem, prayer is the prescription, and finally, the church is the pharmacy. The sick are to call for the elders of the church here. Now, I may be going astray here, I don't know. I can't be dogmatic about this. But you know what, I don't think this passage is specifically referring to their role as elder, the fact that they are leaders in the church. I just don't understand that particularly. I think he might be referring to them as just people who represent the local church. I think, I think we might even be able to simply simplify his thoughts like this. Perhaps he was saying something like this. Are you sick? Turn to your brothers and sisters in the church. Turn to your church. I think that's what he's saying. Can't be dogmatic. But I think I'm right. I don't think there's anything special about the elders, that they are the ones. I don't see that. Oh, the church is important. Not the building. I'm not talking about the building talking about the people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. And when we go through a valley, when we go through a time of sickness, that's when that need becomes acute. We do need to turn to each other when we are sick. We do need to pray for those among us who are sick. And I think James might also be saying here we do need to soothe and comfort each other when we are sick as well. We talked about the oil earlier. Let me just mention one other thought about the oil. Because I wonder sometimes, I can't help wondering, whether if when we concentrate on the oil, we miss the whole point. Is it possible that James was not stressing the agent used in the anointing as much as the act of the anointing? Is it possible that what he was talking about was just the touch of one person? Anointing was used for all kinds of things. Refreshment was one of them. And it was just a touch. Is it possible? One person said sick people need human touch most of all and get it the least. Could James be reminding us here that we need to have this faith that works, a faith that actually puts our arms around those who are in need? A faith that takes the sick by the hand. A faith that touches. Is it possible? I remember one of my very first hospital calls. I was a young assistant pastor at the time, and I was working with John Cornett. I've mentioned him once already in this message. but We were called to go to a hospital room to visit with a young man who was dying of AIDS. This young man had been a member of the church and drifted away. It was early days for that disease. This was 30 years ago. 
There's a lot of disinformation around and fear. It's been 30 years. I knew I'd have a hard time getting through this illustration. It's been 30 years, and I can still remember that kid sitting there on that bed. I can still see his face. His name was Mike. He was clearly afraid. struggling to breathe. And he had called for the elders of the church. And we had come. And he asked us to pray. And we prayed. But we both kept our distance. We didn't go anywhere near him. You know, as I think back on that, I've thought back on that so many times. He needed us to be there. He needed us to pray. But he also needed somebody to just take him by the hand. He needed a touch. Jesus would have taken him by the hand. Jesus took lepers by the hand. I read one person commenting on that, and he said, Jesus didn't have to touch lepers. Jesus could have healed lepers from hundreds of yards away. But he touched them. Is it possible? That's what James is talking about here. The church is so important. When we are sick, we so quickly find out just how much we need the prayers of our church family. But do we not also find out how much we need them to be there? And maybe how much we just need them to take us by the hand. The church is the pharmacy. It's where we go. It's where we turn. James reminds us that sin is the problem. Prayer is the prescription and the church is the pharmacy. Well... We've talked through a lot of different things here this morning, and I, I told Pastor Phil beforehand, I think I probably bit off more than I could chew trying to get all of this into one sermon today, but be that as it may, we'll conclude it now. And we'll conclude it with the way Paul or James concluded it here in these last couple of verses, because he reminds us of something here in just the last two verses. He reminds us that these things are not the responsibilities of others, But they're my responsibility, they're your responsibility, they're all of them. We all share in them. Notice what he says, verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There's a ton of things we could talk about in that passage, and we don't have time. Or save them for another day. But just notice this truth. James is not just talking to elders there. He's talking to all of us. All of us need a faith that works. All of us need a faith that cares about others in need, that goes to them, that prays with them, that comforts them in their distress and restores them when they stray. All 